Before we begin our study of God's Word, we have to make sure that we are indeed in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, after salvation, everybody commits sins, but every one of these sins was paid for completely and in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. So the issue is not that you have to pay for those sins through some expression of remorse or contrition or anything like that. The issue is recognition of sin is sin, admission of sin, acknowledging sin in your life, and admitting it to God the Father in the privacy of your own soul. The issue is between you and God. It's not between you and anybody else. At the instant you admit your sins to God the Father, we are instantly forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Now, in the last hour, we had an extended discussion of the relationship of forgiveness to discipline and consequences of sin. And that is something that I would encourage you, if you were not here, to get the tape and listen to that and relating it to current situations with the president and the status of the nation. This, mo- this morning, the second hour, we have another important doctrine to cover, so we need to make sure we are in fellowship and that we have, uh, therefore, all objectivity or access to objectivity and not subjectivity because we must focus on the truth of God's Word and not any past preconceived notions. So let's begin with a silent prayer for confession of sin, and then we'll pray. Father, what a tremendous opportunity and privilege it is for us to worship you this morning, for you are the God who from eternity past planned out our so great salvation. You are the God who planned to Uh, take care of every problem, every sin, every difficulty we would ever face. You are the God who planned our magnificent salvation, whereby Jesus Christ would go to the cross and die as our substitute. And Father, we, by virtue of our faith alone in Christ alone, entered into your family by regeneration and adoption at the moment of our salvation. And so as a result of that, we have a very intimate, intimate relationship with you, And we are to give you all honor, glory, and praise and worship you by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the truth of Bible doctrine. So, Father, now as we come to this important aspect of our worship where we study your word, we pray that we might give it the honor, the the attention that it deserves because nothing else matters than what you've said. We pray that you would guide and direct us, help us think clearly and objectively at this important issue. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John, chapter 2. Before we begin our study of John, I want to remind you of the purpose that John wrote the Gospel. Time and again, we will come back to this purpose to understand why it is that John has included what he has included in his Gospel. John wrote in John 20, 30, and 31, but these are written that ye might believe. Believe what? believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Messiah. So that is, much that he has written is specifically written to show, to provide evidence, courtroom evidence, that Jesus fulfills the messianic expectations and prophecies of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. We have been studying the first week of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It began, we know, by backing up from certain contextual clues on a Thursday. 
we had four days in the life of John the Baptist, which are covered under the testimony of John the Baptist at the end of the first chapter of John. Thursday, Friday, Saturday the Shabbat, and on Sunday the Lord left to travel. And during that time, he picks up six of his disciples. They are not officially called yet, but they are invited to follow him. We have uh, Andrew and his brother Simon Peter, John and James, Philip and Nathaniel. And then there are two days that are travel days, Monday and Tuesday. And then on the third day, chapter 2, verse 1, and on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So this takes place on a Wednesday because we know from rabbinical writings, according to the Mishnah, that if there was a wedding and the bride was a virgin, then they were to be married on a Wednesday. And if she, if it was a widow, then the wedding were to take place on a Thursday. So this is a Wednesday. Now, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, it's going to be important that John says this. There were several towns named Cana in Israel. But he is going to make a specific point for us. He wants us to know that this is in Cana of Galilee. Why? Because in Galilee, the uh, traditions of a wedding were slightly different from the way they were in Judea in the south. And this is going to play into what he says and give us historical credibility that the writer of this gospel is indeed who he claims to be writing during the time period that he claimed to write, and that he is fully aware of the customs and the procedures of Jews in Galilee at that time. The liberals say that these, epist- these gospels were written 100, 150 years later, but we believe they are what they claim to be, that is, the inerrant and infallible Word of God, and there is evidence of such that they are exactly what they claim to be. And we're told on the third day, There was this wedding, and the mother of Jesus was there. In contrast to the presence of the mother of Jesus, notice she is not mentioned by name. She has just said the mother of Jesus. The writers of the Gospels do not give much credibility or emphasis to Mary as Mary. This was a heresy that came into the church uh, many years later as a result of the assimilation of Christianity to pagan cults. Almost every uh, world religion, every cult, uh, world cult, especially in the ancient world, had what was called a mother-child cult. You had Isis and Osiris in Egypt. You had uh, uh, Tammuz, and I forget the name, Astarte and Tammuz in in, uh, ancient Babylon. You have um, Sibylle Attis cult in Greek. Uh, Different names given to different figures, but it's the same thing where there was a child that was born to the mother and died every year and came back the next year in the cycle of the seasons from autumn to spring and in a satanic counterfeit. And there was an elevation to honor the mother of the child. And when Christianity came in, what they did was, oh, just another mother-child, you have Mary and a baby. And so instead of the little figures of Isis and Osiris or or Tammuz and and Astarte or uh, Addis and Sibylle, they would take those same figures and now call them Mary and Jesus. And you can document that historically, and they just assimilated this mother worship. But you don't see this 
this kind of respect or honor given to Mary. In fact, she's de-emphasized by the writer, uh, by John the Apostle, not emphasized. The mother of Jesus was there. Now, she was there as opposed to Jesus was also invited and his disciples. Because it would seem that uh, Mary was very close to the family because of what happens in this episode and her uh, awareness of the fact that the wine had played out and what was going on, that she took it upon herself to solve the problem, that she had an official function at this wedding reception. And incidentally, a wedding reception would go on for about a week so that you had to lay in great supplies of food and beverage in order to take care of the guests during that uh, week-long feast. Sometimes the scriptures give evidence that it may have lasted as long as two weeks on occasion. So they really celebrated when there was a wedding. It was a time of tremendous joy and celebration. And remember that because that is why uh, part of the underlying reason for uh, the wine here and the significance of the wine here is its relationship throughout the scripture as uh, not, not to reduce its literal significance, but it was there because it also symbolized celebration and joy. Jesus and his disciples are invited, but Mary seems to have some official function at the wedding. When the wine gave out, now this is just a major social tragedy for the wine to give out. It really is. Because in that day and age, under the social conventions of the time, the host was to supply everybody. You couldn't run down to the local stop and shop or whatever and pick up a couple of more bottles of wine or a couple of more barrels of wine. You were really in, in trouble if you ran out and you were, the, you were, it was incumbent upon you as a host to supply plenty of food and beverage for everybody. And if you did not then, and, and, fa- and, and it failed, then it was a major uh, social embarrassment. Now this raises the whole question before we get into the text itself of the relationship of wine or alcoholic beverages to the believer. So we are going to take the time this morning to go over the biblical doctrine of drinking. By way of introduction, I want to stress the importance of objectivity here. Many people have a very difficult time being objective when it comes to the subject of alcoholic beverages. Perhaps you grew up in a home or you have a background where you saw a lot of alcoholic abuse. I had a friend of mine in seminary whose father was an alcoholic And he really struggled with, he knew what the Bible truly taught, but he struggled with it because all he ever saw was destruction and collapse and trauma in his life and in family life. And he struggled with being objective about what the scripture said. So if you come from a background where perhaps all you have had in your personal life, maybe you've struggled with uh, alcoholism or abuse of alcohol in your personal life or your parents, or friends or family, and you've seen the destructive negative effects of that, do not let that color your understanding of what the Word of God says. Remember, the Word of God is the absolute, not your experience. We always judge our experiences by the Word of God and never the Word of God by our experiences. Furthermore, some of you may have grown up in Christian traditions that have been dominated by legalism. 
the, much of the legalism, especially uh, related to social taboos that have governed the thought in this area in our country, have its roots in some of the most perverse heresy that has, shift, that has caused tremendous trouble throughout the history of Christianity in this country. I don't want to go over this. I don't get a, the opportunity to do this very often. If you go back to the early 19th century, about 1800, just about that time you have what was called the Second Great Awakening. Now, the Second Great Awakening had some good effects, but it had a lot of bad effects. And one of the bad effects was it produced a guy by the name of Charles Grandison Finney. Charles Grandison Finney is held up by many believers as a great evangelist. And it just shows how little they know about A, theology, B, history, and C, Finney. Finney held, number one, that man is not born totally depraved. He is not born a sinner. He becomes a sinner. So, therefore, you can choose to, uh, theoretically, to be good all of your life. Secondly, he did not believe that Christ died as a substitute for your sins. But the Scripture is very clear. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrated His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the Greek here is huper. H-U-P-E-R is the preposition for. And it is a substitu- it's a preposition of substitution. And it means to die in the place of. Jesus' death, He paid the penalty for our sins. He died as our substitute. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Finney taught that Jesus died as an example, as a moral example. So he, he doesn't have to die for your sins because you're really not a sinner. See how theology always hangs together. You're really not a sinner, and, and, and he's just an example. So the issue here is morality not spirituality. And remember, there's always a difference between morality and spirituality. Morality is anything that an unbeliever can do, but a spirituality is that unique life of the believer through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And he believed that all you had to do was pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to live a good moral life. Now, this had two applications. It had personal application in terms of your own life, emphasis of morality and work, salvation by doing good. But remember, the Scripture says in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness is as filthy rags. In Titus 3, 5, it's not by works of righteousness. Notice it's works of righteousness. Those things that we think are really, really good. It's not by works of righteousness, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, personally... It was a a salvation by works, but it also had a social dimension. And that social dimension was that uh, related to his eschatology, his view of the future, which is post-millennial. Millennial relates to that thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ that comes in the future when he returns at the second advent, comes down to earth and establishes the Davidic covenant. Well, post-millennialism says that first the church is going to bring in the millennium, Christ doesn't come back first. The church does it through its good works. And then at the end, Jesus comes back. The church is going to purify society. So if we're going to do this, and this, of course, is a Christian nation. That was a a false assumption. A nation cannot be Christian. Only an individual can be regenerated by faith alone in Christ alone. A nation is a collection of people. A collection of people can't be anything other than a collection of people. They can be influenced by certain views 
some Christian, some not Christian, as the founding of this nation was, but it is not a Christian nation. That was his assumption. As a Christian nation, what we have to do is we have to get rid of all these social ills. What are these social ills? Well, the biggie, if we just get rid of slavery, then we will be on the road to redemption as a nation and we can bring in the kingdom. Then we need to get rid of alcohol. Then we need to, to have uh, women's rights. And then we need to get, deal with child labor. And if we can just solve all of these problems, then we will have a perfect society. And the assumption is you can have a perfect society because, frankly, we're not totally depraved. So we are all perfectible. That was his assumption. Now, that's high arrogance. Finney went out and he founded a school in Ohio called Oberlin Seminary. And they generated all kinds of abolitionists. Now, abolitionists operated on the same principle of all this moral do-goodism as Finney, which is nothing but arrogance. Arrogance is always divisive. Nothing worse than crusader arrogance, which is going to create problems. Now, the important thing about this in contrast is if you look at what happened to slavery in England. In England, you had men like William Wilberforce and Granville Sharp, who were truly evangelical believers, who understood total depravity and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. You see, theology makes a difference, not only in terms of your personal relationship with God, but in terms of how it impacts your society, your government, and everything else. Because they were not motivated by arrogance and a works-oriented system, like Finney was and the abolitionists were here. They were motivated by humility and they understood reality as defined by the Word of God. They were able to abolish slavery in England without it creating a social calamity and ending up in a civil war. But when arrogance enters in and you have your abolitionists going this way to this extreme and their crusader arrogance, and then you have your hot spurs in the south going this way in reaction to the arrogance of the abolitionists, nobody listening to reason and everybody just operating on emotional arrogance, the result was we had a civil war. And we're still struggling with all of the social ills that came about. Well, one of the problems with arrogance is that once you solve the problem, you think, oh, I solved the problem, you don't care about the people. And so... They didn't care anything about really solving the plight of the black man. They just wanted to get him free, and they didn't deal with any long-term solutions. So as soon as that was over with, they turned their attention to temperance. And you had, for example, in Dodge City in Kansas, you had um, prohibition laws passed as early as 1876 and 1877. And you've got to do away with alcohol. We know the tragedy that resulted in that. And uh, the whole women's liberation movement, uh, granted, women were dealt very unjustly in many different categories, and that needed to be dealt with. But the underlying rationale, what we see with the now crowd and, and uh, the women's lib movement is how it went totally to the other extreme. Why? Roots in arrogance. It's roots in postmillennial thought and uh, Finneyism. And, and uh, of course, Finney was combined with a lot of the liberalism of the uh, Thoreau crowd and the transcendentalists. But the point that I'm wanting to make here is that this anti-alcoholism, defining alcohol use as inherently sinful, has its roots in a religious theological framework that grew out of what was called revivalistic theology in America. And so it, it has a theological connection to works-oriented salvation, 
postmillennialism and social do-goodism, none of which is biblical. So we have to have some objectivity. We have to understand a little bit about uh, some of these things. So if you grew up in a background where there was a lot of uh, self-righteousness and there was a lot of legalism about the fact that Christians should never drink or alcohol should never pass the lips of a believer, or if so, his eternal salvation was suspect and he was in danger of eternal damnation, then um, you need to be objective. You need to look at what the Word of God says and look at things from a balanced view because those ideas have their roots in some heretical soil. Okay, therefore... As we approach this, let's sit back, relax, because we're in for a bumpy ride. Let's look at the evidence. Point number one. Uh, Well, as we get in this, let's ask the question, first of all, the question that everybody asked, was the wine here fermented or unfermented grape juice? Now, remember, there are two different types of wine here. There's the wine that they brought out initially, And then there is the wine that Jesus miraculously produced from the water. Uh, Both are going to be the same because the second was said to be better than the first. So whatever the first was, the second was. So we have to ask, was this fermented or unfermented grape juice? In other words, was it wine or was it Welch's? Point number one. Grapes had been a major crop in Palestine since ancient times. Remember when the Israelites were going to go into the land of milk and honey and they sent the 12 spies in and they came back? They had a cluster of grapes that was so large and so heavy, it was carried on a pole between two men. You ever seen a cluster of grapes that large? That's incredible. And that shows the bounty of the land. So great, the, the viticulture in Palestine has a very long, long history going back thousands of years. Secondly, ancient commercial records indicate that grapes and wine were a major commodity in the ancient world and that Palestinian wines in particular enjoyed a widespread reputation for their excellence. Hebron, that area of Judea just south of Jerusalem, Eshkol, and the Transjordan, the area across the Jordan to the east, were widely known in the ancient world for the quality of their wines. The wines of Syria were exported throughout the known world. So this area of the ancient world had a strong historic viticulture. Ezekiel 27, 18 through 19 mentions this. Third point. In Israel, grapes ripened and were harvested in August and early September. Right about this time of the year, they're harvesting the grapes. Remember, the wedding in Cana is just before Passover. We learn that by looking down to verse 12. After this, that is right after the wedding, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and there they stayed a few days. Maybe a week, maybe two weeks, certainly not longer than that. Verse 13, and the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Now, the Passover occurs on the 14th day of Nisan, which is roughly equivalent to our April, late March period on the Jewish calendar. So that takes place in early to mid-spring. So if the wedding in Cana is just before Passover, it's in mid to late March. There is no technology available 
to the ancient world. In fact, there's not technology available to anybody until the late 19th century to keep fruit juice, which is very sweet, has a high sugar content, which is the basis for the chemical reaction of fermentation. There is no way to keep fruit juice from fermenting at all. And within 24 hours, fruit juice will begin to ferment unless uh, it, is, uh, it is treated in some chemical fashion or by pasteurization. So if the wedding is in mid to late March and the grapes were, the harvest was six months earlier, it's impossible that that juice could not have fermented. Fourth, both wine and new wine, in the Greek, the term is oinos. O-I-N-O-S, and in the Hebrew, it is yayin. Y-A-Y-I-N. Now, These words are used a number of times at a number of occasions in Scripture, and word meaning is always defined by usage. So let's see how they are used. Yayin is used in Genesis 9.21 to describe the drunkenness, what caused the drunkenness of Noah after the flood. It's also used in 1935 when Lot's daughters got him smashed on wine so that they could commit incest with him to preserve his lineage. So it is there, of course, condemned by Scripture, and we'll get into that later. But wine, obviously, yayin, can cause drunkenness. Also, Proverbs 23.20, it is linked with drunkenness. Some people try to make a distinction between wine and new wine and say that new wine is that which has been freshly squeezed and therefore has not had time to ferment. Yet in Hosea 4.11, it is said to cause drunkenness and in Acts 2.13, new wine, which is called glucose. Uh, there they said at Pentecost, these men have, uh, are speaking. They must be drunk and have, um, uh, speaking in these languages, they must be drunk and have partaken of new wine. So drunkenness is associated with wine and new wine in various passages in both the Old and New Testament. So clearly both wine and new wine had an alcoholic content at least high enough to induce intoxication. Fifth, the terminology of the head waiter indicates that intoxication was expected or it was expected that the wine would be able to induce intoxication. Look down at verse 10. Something I learned my very first year of Greek at Dallas Seminary. I almost missed it because I was distracted by something else and Professor just pulled a little gem right out of the air here. The uh, head waiter says to the bridegroom, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely. Now that's what it says in your pathetic English translation. Now the Greek word here is methusko. M-E-T-H-U-S-K-O. Now what does methusko mean? Well, if you look it up in something that gives you a really detailed discussion, like Kittle's uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it lists the following meanings. To make drunk, to get drunk, and to intoxicate. That's the meaning of the whole word group, Methusko, Methuskamai, and the nouns, Methusos. All of these relate to drunkenness. 
They are words that are normally translated drunkenness, intoxication, drunkard, to make drunk. But you had some legalist teetotaler who couldn't handle the fact that Jesus created real wine here. Translate it when men have drunk. What it says literally in the Greek is every man serves the good wine first. And when people are intoxicated and can no longer tell the difference between good wine and bad wine, then you bring out the cheap stuff because they won't know the difference. That's what he's saying. A little bit of a literal expanded translation there. So it's clear that there's a principle here that you serve the good wine first and then after people have had a little bit and they really can't tell the difference, then you bring out the cheap stuff. So the terminology makes it clear that intoxication was possible. And intoxication is possible only if the wine is alcoholic. So we must conclude that the wine here, both the wine Jesus created and the wine that was initially served were both alcoholic. So, now we have to ask another question. What is the process of winemaking so we can understand the nature of the miracle? Point number six. Grapes, after they are harvested, they are crushed in a vat that was usually constructed of stone. It was done the old-fashioned way by stomping them. And the men would have a great uh, joyous time dancing around in the vat, shouting and singing songs. In fact, several, it's possible that several of the psalms were psalms that were associated with this type of the year. Passages like Isaiah 16.10 refer to this. And gladness and joy, this is a, also a, a statement of prophetic judgment, but it relates to the subject. And gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field, in the vineyards also there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting. That means it was typical for in the vineyards for there to be cries of joy and jubilant shouting. No treader will tread out wine in the presses, for I have made the shouting to cease. In other words, it was pretty standard operating procedure for there to be a great time of celebration during the harvest. And the men would sing songs and dance and shout while they were uh, treading out the wine. Jeremiah 25.30 Therefore you shall prophesy against them all these words, and you shall say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will shout like those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. Jeremiah 48:33. So gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field, even from the land of Moab. And I have made the wine to cease from the wine presses. No one will tread them with shouting. The shouting will not be shouts of joy. So they shouted and they danced and they sang in celebration of the harvest while they stomped out the grapes. This stomping produced a pulp, which is called grated must. And it is from this must that was made from uh, red grapes. And the wine there was usually red wine. The difference is whether you leave the skin in there for a certain amount of time or not. The must would then begin to ferment in as little as six hours after the pressing. The uh, must would be placed initially in stone jars where it would ferment for a while. And then it was transferred from the jars to wine skins. These were taken from the whole skin of sheep 
or goats, the feet were tied off, the throat was tied off, and they, they would uh, pour the wine in and tie everything off. New wine was never poured into old skins because in the fermentation process, gases were produced, which would cause the skin to expand. New skin had elasticity and would expand, but older skins would dry and crack and become brittle and explode uh, from the expanding gases. So that's the process. Point number seven. So from all of this, we have a clear answer. The wine was fermented. It was impossible for it to be otherwise. Now, wine generally has an alcoholic content of between 16% and 22%. So so that's, but is this the uh, strength of the wine that they had at that time? That's the next question we must ask, which leads us to point eight, which is the Greek custom for drinking wine. Point eight is the Greek custom. When we interpret scriptures, the scripture must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written and in according to the culture in which it was written. The Greeks took wine and put them in a large storage vat of a, that contained about nine ca- gallons called an amphora. Uh, from that amphora, they would pour the wine out into a mixing bowl called a crator. Okay, so that you would start off, you would have your amphora which is your large nine-gallon jar. From that, it's poured out into a mixing bowl called a krator, K-R-A-T-O-R. There, water was introduced, H2O, to dilute the wine. According to Homer, in the Iliad line, our section 3, line 265, we read, Then rose up Agamemnon, king of men and Odysseus of many wiles, and mixed the wine in the bowl. And that's what they're doing. They're taking the strong, undiluted wine that's about 16 to 20% alcohol, and they're pouring it out into the bowl to mix it with water. Uh, Line 295 says that they poured wine from the mixing bowl into the cups. So then they would take the wine out, pour it from the mixing bowl into their standard little cup, from which they would drink the wine. The Greeks considered anyone who did not dilute wine to be a barbarian. They would mix as much as a ratio of ten parts water to one part wine, but usually it was more in the order of four to six parts wine, uh, water to uh, one part wine. And the Odyssey... Book 9, line 208, um, it's a mixture of 20 parts water to one part wine. In other places, the ratio can be as little as 3 to 1 or 2 to 1. So you have, uh, this was the standard Greek practice, and the Greeks thought anyone who didn't dilute wine to be rather barbaric, which indicated, what's the assumption there? Watch it. The assumption is that non-Greeks didn't dilute their wine. Okay? So we're in Israel. We're non-Greeks. Jewish evidence. Ah, little interesting discontinuity of evidence among the Jewish evidence. This is the next point, which I believe is point nine. Jewish evidence. Jewish evidence is that sometimes they mixed and sometimes they didn't. In 2 Maccabees 15.39, which is one of those apocryphal books that you don't have in your Protestant Bible because it's 
is not accepted by the Jews at all in terms of Old Testament literature. It's intertestamental literature. There are several books written by the Jews that cover that period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And the Jews have never accepted them as being part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, we haven't. Uh, Jerome, who was a, uh, the one who translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, uh, did not believe they were part of Scripture either, but he thought they were interesting reading and people should read them, so he included them in the Latin Vulgate. And later on, the Roman Catholics decided, well, if it's there, it must be the Word of God. Well, Jerome never thought they were the Word of God. He just thought they were interesting reading. Second Maccabees 15.39 says, While it is harmful to drink wine alone, or to drink water alone, while wine mixed with water is sweet and delicious and enhances one's enjoyment. So there's a testimony to a mixture in 2 Maccabees 15.39. But Isaiah seems to contradict this and states that diluted wine was a sign of a loss of divine blessing. Isaiah 1.22, there's the judgment that if you continue, your silver has become dross and your drink diluted with water. So there the dilution of wine with water was considered to be a sign of divine judgment. The Talmud which was written by the Jewish rabbis after the time of Christ, contains instruction for missing the Passover wine. In Tractate Shabbat 77a, you have the instructions for mixing water, three parts water to one part wine for the Passover. Now that brings us to point 10, I believe, Christian evidence. Christian evidence, one of the early church fathers at the beginning of the second century, Around 120 A.D., Justin Martyr, in his book, The Apology, book 1, chapter 67, in paragraph 5, he says, add wine and water together. Cyprian, who was in the late 2nd century and early 3rd century, in his 62nd epistle, uh, chapter 11, paragraph 13, says, In considering the cup of the Lord... Water alone cannot be offered, and wine alone cannot be offered. Thus, the cup of the Lord is not water alone or wine alone, unless each be mingled with the other. So there's evidence from the early, early church history that they used alcoholic beverages at the Lord's table because they used alcoholic beverages at the Passover. Clement of Alexandria again about the end of the 2nd century, beginning of the 3rd century, in his work, The Instructor, uh, book 2, chapter 23, paragraphs 3 through 24, he says, It is best for the wine to be mixed with as much water as possible. So, it's very likely, when we come in evaluating all of this evidence, that the wine in John 2 was genuine wine, but it was not as strong as the wine today. It was probably diluted um, four parts or three parts water to one part wine, so that would make it somewhere between 4 to 6% alcohol, about equivalent to the alcohol content of a beer today. So to get drunk, one had to indeed imbibe large amounts in order to get, get high. Okay, that takes us. We've seen our conclusion that this is alcoholic, so what application does that have to the believer? Second area we need to discuss is the legitimate uses of wine. Point one, wine is part of God's creation and to be enjoyed by every human being. Where you see wine, you see a picture of joy throughout the scripture. 
when wine is used in accord with God's instructions, it is a pleasure and a joy. But when it is used apart from God's instruction, it is a curse and is destructive. The point is that if you cannot handle wine according to God's instructions or alcoholic beverages according to God's instructions, then you need to avoid it like anything else in life that you can't handle. But do not impose your weaknesses on others in self-righteousness. Secondly, wine and alcoholic beverages were a central part of worship and celebration during certain religious feasts and activities. In fact, the Hebrew word for banquet is derived from the word for drinking. They knew that a banquet was a big drinking fest. Let's look at some examples in the Old Testament. You don't need to turn there because I will go through them rapidly. Abraham and Melchizedek. We studied that in Hebrews 7 this morning uh, when Abraham met with Melchizedek. In Genesis 14:18, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was priest of God Most High. So to celebrate Abraham's victory over the five kings who came in from the east, they, had bre- they broke bread and drank wine together. Secondly, wine was part of the perpetual daily sacrifice. Exodus 29:39 through 41. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Exodus 29.40, and there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a heen. A heen is a gallon. So we're talking about a quart of um, about a tenth of flour, which would be maybe a cup of flour mixed with a, uh, um, a quart of oil and a quart of wine for a libation. So the wine was poured out with the, with the daily offering every morning and every night in the tabernacle. Wine was part of the grain offering in Leviticus 23.13. I'd like to have the fan turned on, okay? Please, Aaron. Uh, Wine was part of the grain offering in Leviticus 23.13. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering by fire to the Lord for a soothing aroma, with its libation a fourth of a heen of wine. Aaron, the fan. Please, thank you. Uh, Wine was to be included in other offerings, uh, these are listed in Numbers 15.7 and verse 10, uh, chat, Numbers 18, verses 12 and 27. Uh, wine production was specifically stated to be a sign of divine blessing for Israel. This is in Deuteronomy 7.13 and 11.14. The people would know that God was blessing them and prospering them economically which was a sign of their obedience to them. You can slow it down just a little bit before I blow away. Uh, Wine was a sign of divine blessing for Israel. So if they had a good crop, they had a good crop of grapes and a good production of wine, then they knew God was blessing them. And once a year, there was to be a grand celebration in Jerusalem, and everyone was to spend a tithe of their income on whatever food, wine, or beer they desired for the celebration. Listen to Deuteronomy 14.23. And you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, in order that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink. Strong drink is beer. Uh, it's a grain, barley, and hops beverage. 
or strong drink, or whatever your heart desires. And there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Notice the key word, joy, is always tied and related to wine. Then rejoice you and your household. It was a celebration to the Lord over the prosperity that he provided for them in grace during the previous year, as exemplified by their tremendous production. The celebration of the Feast of Booths included wine. Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 15. This came, what? Oh, the celebration of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths. This was done every year in December as one of the seven feasts in the Israelite calendar. Booths. B-O-O-T-H-S. Okay? just want to make sure I'm articulating correctly. Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 15. It was a seven-day festival. Verse 15, seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place where the Lord chooses. Because the Lord God, your God, will bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands so that you shall be altogether joyful. So the nature of wine drinking here was, in all these passages, is to celebrate and worship the Lord and praise Him for the joy that He has provided. Now, this is clear from Psalm 104. This is very important to get this verse down. Psalm 104, make sure you understand this. God is the subject. God causes. There's your main verb. Now, there's going to be a list of things that He causes. God causes, one, the grass to grow for the cattle. God causes, two, and vegetation for the labor of man. I don't know if that's to cause labor or what. Those of us been working in our yards lately think it causes our labor. So that He may bring forth food from the earth. And God causes wine which makes man's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and the food which sustains man's heart. So there, the psalmist clearly attributes wine to the divine blessing of God and God's grace provision for man for enjoyment. On the other hand, the loss of the grape crop and the loss of wine was a sign of divine judgment on the nation. Deuteronomy 28.39, You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall devour them. The prophet Isaiah referred to this in Isaiah 5.2, and he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones because of divine judgment. Looking forward to to a banquet of wine, which pictures joy of fellowship with God and is exemplified specifically in the Messianic kingdom. So in this verse, we're going to see wine related to joy and related to that which the Messiah supplies. Why did John, I don't want you to miss this, why did John write the gospel? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. What is the Messiah going to do? He is going to bring in a time called the Messianic Kingdom, the Millennial Kingdom, exemplified by incredible joy like the world has ever known, symbolized by what? By wine. Isaiah 25, 6. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. Twice it's mentioned for to make sure that you get the point. So, wine is always associated with joy.
wedding feast. It was a time of tremendous joy. So we've got to tie these concepts together when we look at uh, the chapter that the wine, the wedding feast, and the miracle all say something about Jesus' messianic role coming to provide joy for mankind. But that's next week. Now we're studying the doctrine of drinking and we're looking at the legitimate uses and the third legitimate use the second was in celebration and worship in the Old Testament. Point three, it was used medicinally. Proverbs 31.6, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. Also in 1 Timothy 5.23, Timothy was a pastor who apparently had some stomach problems. We're not sure if that was caused by his congregation or just because he had, uh, he had some personal health problems. But... Paul's advice was no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So wine was used medicinally. Point number four, when the Lord came in his king came to present his kingdom, to offer his kingdom in the Gospels, he went to parties, banquets, and he ate the food that was offered him, and he was accused of being a glutton. If he hadn't eaten, he couldn't have been accused of being a glutton. But he went to the party and he ate and he was accused of being a glutton. The Pharisees took what he did legitimately and exaggerated it and condemned it from their self-righteousness. In the same way, he must have enjoyed the contemporary practice of having a glass of wine or two with his meal because the Pharisees said he was a drunkard. They exaggerated what he did legitimately and accused him of being a drunk. Since the Lord Jesus Christ is impeccable and without sin, the use of alcohol cannot be inherently sinful. Matthew 11:19, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet, and, and they could not make those claims if there wasn't a grain of truth. He ate and he drank. But they exaggerated it in their self-righteousness. Well, that shows us that there is a legitimate basis for the use of alcoholic beverages. It must be done in moderation. It is never to be used illegitimately. And that brings us to the next subject, which is the illegitimate use of wine. Remember, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine. That's the point. The basic command is intemperance is always condemned in the Scriptures. If you cannot use alcohol without it being intemperate, do not use alcohol at all. Intemperance is condemned throughout the Old and New Testament. While total abstinence is never mandated as a universal principle, certain persons are commanded by Scripture to avoid alcoholic beverages. In in the Old Testament, Levitical priests were forbidden alcoholic beverages in Leviticus 10 and Ezekiel 44. Do not make the mistake that some do that because you are a priest in the royal family of God that that applies to you. You are not a Levite. Levites didn't even have to be regenerated. They just had to be born into the physical family of Levi. There's no requirement anywhere that they be born again or saved. They just had to have physical descent from Levi. They did not have to have a spiritual relationship with God at all. So do not make the false analogy. Nazarites, a special view to show that they were totally separate from their culture, and that was a unique vow taken by them, number 6-3, Judges 13, uh, 4 and following. The Rechabites, in Jeremiah 35, 
6, 8, and 14. And Daniel and his friends abstained from alcoholic beverage because it was associated with the uh, pagan practices uh, in Babylon, Daniel 1, 8 through 16. So point number one is that intemperance is condemned. Abstinence is not mandated except for a few groups in the Old Testament. Point number two, the abuse, misuse, and overuse of alcohol is clearly forbidden, as is drunkenness. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine. Point number three, wine is to be refrained from when clear thinking is required. Thus, it is specifically forbidden of certain leaders. Proverbs 31, 4 through 5, it is forbidden to kings, to the executive officer of a nation. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and perverts the rights of the afflicted. Also, uh, Proverbs 21 gives further information about drunkenness. Because these people are involved in key decisions, the higher you go up the leadership ladder, the less you should uh, partake of alcoholic beverages because you never know when you're going to have to make crucial decisions that affect an entire nation, so you need to always have your wits about you. The priest, when he was on duty, was not to drink in Leviticus 10, 8 through 9. The priest... The Levite was not to have any alcohol when he was on duty. Sometimes they were never on duty. Number 6.3, the Nazarite was forbidden wine. First uh, Timothy 3, pastors and deacons, while not told to be teetotalers, are forbidden to be alcoholics or drunks. Deacons, take note. doesn't say you have to be a teetotaler, but you can't be an alcoholic or a drunk. First Timothy 3.3, for pastors not addicted to wine. 1 Timothy 3.8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. So this says that alcoholism, active alcoholism that is, and addiction to wine is to, or drunkenness is not to be a character of pastors or deacons. That brings us to point four under this category, concluding principles. One, the Bible gives no encouragement and no excuse for excessive drinking. So those of you who think, boy, it's okay, I'm going to go tie one on, you have no excuse. The Bible gives no encouragement and no excuse for excessive drinking. Point two, while drinking in moderation is permitted, there are many believers, and maybe some of you who cannot do so because you will abuse it, you have a a weakness there. You have to learn to say, others may, I cannot. You have to exercise self-discipline. See, for the believer who cannot or will not drink in moderation, he should avoid the use of alcohol completely except in medications. Point number four, when in doubt, if there's any question in your mind, abstain. For alcohol can create too many problems. That brings us to the next topic we need to cover. Alcohol and alcoholism. Point number one, and this is a lengthy point, I'll say a lot about it, but it's important. The common definition of alcoholism is that it is a disease. Now, let's understand what a disease is. 
By definition, a disease is something that you can catch, something that is transmitted to you against your volition. However, the Bible sees drunkenness, addiction to alcohol, and alcoholism as fundamentally volitional and therefore sinful. According to the Bible, alcoholism is not a disease, it is a sin. Now, we have to understand that that a disease is something that overrides volition and forces a person to do something or to behave a certain way. You are, an alcoholic is not forced against their will to drink. They initially are the ones who made a decision to pick up that glass of wine or beer or scotch or whatever it was, and their volition was engaged. Now, after a period of time, they might develop a habit. They might develop a physical craving. They might develop physical addiction problems that are very difficult to overcome and to deal with. But initially, the problem is caused by the exercise of their volition. And so whatever the solution is, ultimately, it must be resolved in the realm of volition. Alcoholism results in disease, but is itself not a disease. We must always remember that there is the factor of volitional responsibility And under the biblical law of volitional responsibility, the believer who becomes an alcoholic inflicts upon himself and those around him an unbearable suffering that is the result of a series of bad decisions from a position of weakness based on the control of the sin nature. Volition is very important to understanding the whole problem of alcoholism and sin. Remember, we all have a sin nature. We saw in the first hour, sin nature is transmitted genetically. From, from Through the Father, the sin nature comes down, and you inherit this sin nature. It has a, both a physical, a material, and an immaterial base. It's transmitted genetically, and you have certain trends. Now, some of you don't have any trend at all towards, uh, the use, towards chemical dependency. You have various lusts here, one Lust pattern is chemical lust, chemical dependency. Now, some of you may have a trend towards asceticism, and so you think everybody ought to stay away from alcohol. Others of you have a trend towards antinomianism, and you think everybody ought to have a really good time. But those of you who have a chemical lust and a chemical dependency or a propensity towards chemical dependency translated genetically may inherit certain traits. And it is much easier for you to become dependent upon alcohol than someone else. So there is a physical basis for it. But that is not kicked into play, whether it's sexual aberration, sexual addiction, chemical addiction, addiction to gossip, mental attitude sins, or whatever the arena of sin might be, Every sin nature, everybody has these genetic preponderances in one direction or another. But it is always activated first and foremost by your volition. So the issue, the solution is going to always be for the believer. It has to begin with a spiritual solution. Remember, the divine solution is the only solution. The human solution is no solution. One of the reasons that you have problems without, that I have problems with AA and other 10-step programs is that they define the problem they're seeking to deal with wrongly. They define it as a disease. If you have the wrong diagnosis of the problem, your solution is going to be tainted in certain areas. Now, that doesn't mean that AA doesn't work. But remember, as a believer, you are not a pragmatist, you're a Christian. The issue in life is not what works. 
I can go out in the energy of the flesh and build a huge church and a huge organization, and I can appear to have many converts and do all kinds of things, but it's not done through the power of the Holy Spirit, so it's wood, hay, and stubble, and not gold, silver, and precious stones. The issue for you as a believer is whether or not you want to conquer whatever problems there are in your life in the power of the Holy Spirit and through the use of doctrine, or whether you want to do it in your own power in the flesh, And that's the difference. There are many solutions that you can find to your problems that have nothing to do with the Word of God or dependency upon God the Holy Spirit or on Bible doctrine. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just throw you into another arena of problems and you change one addiction for another addiction. I have to remember that the law of volitional responsibility applies and that is stated in Hosea 8.7. They sow to the wind and they reap the whirlwind. If you give yourself over to start imbibing and you have this weakness, then eventually you're going to reap the whirlwind and create incredible amounts of trauma for yourself and your family. Galatians 6.7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, that will he also reap. Proverbs 22.8 He who sows iniquity reaps trouble, and the rod of his punishment will surely come. Colossians 3.25, He who does wrong will receive the consequences of that wrong, and with God there is no partiality. So the law of volitional responsibility will kick in. If you are an alcoholic and you give in to that, then the cells in your body will adapt to that alcoholic dependency. There will become chemical reactions in your body. At some point you can become physically dependent upon alcohol, and I understand there are certain types of alcoholics that respond to alcohol just as a heroin addict responds to heroin and they have one of the worst forms of alcoholic dependency and it's very difficult for them to break the habit of dependency upon alcohol. So if any of this runs in your family or you have any fear of that, the best thing is to keep that Pandora's box closed and never engage, even though you may have the freedom and privilege to say yes as a believer You also have the freedom and privilege to be wise and to say no. So, point number two, that was all point number one, is that it is volitional. Point number two is everyone has a sin nature, and so these trends can be passed on genetically through the DNA, and so you need to be aware of that, that that may cause you physically to have a greater weakness for alcohol, but but nevertheless, the initial decisions are yours, and they are always volitional. Point number four, alcoholism is a state of sinfulness and carnality which focuses on pleasure and is a way of handling life's problems and difficulties and stresses that are contrary to the divine grace provision. The alcoholic seeks to solve his problems, whatever they may be, whatever the adversities are, by turning to alcohol as opposed to the problem-solving devices outlined in the Word of God. He wants to dull his pain. Point number six. Alcoholics often use alcohol to cover some pain, difficulty, or adversity in life. They want to anesthetize themselves from the realities of life. Therefore, the root issues are spiritual, not just physical or biochemical, and they must be dealt with on the basis of divine viewpoint, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and Bible doctrine. Otherwise, a alcoholic may free himself from alcoholic dependency, but it is done in the power of the flesh and has no spiritual value. Finally, 
The result of too many decisions for drinking creates an endless cycle that may in fact make it almost impossible for the alcoholic to truly ever recover. Now, the last subject I want to cover is drinking and the laws of Christian behavior. There are four laws of Christian behavior outlined in in Corinthians. First of all, that apply to this. First of all, there's the law of liberty. 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and 8, 9. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Now, these were dubious things, doubtful things in Corinth that caused people some concern. They weren't clearly forbidden by the word of God, but the legalist said you can't. The antinomium said do it with all the gusto in life. And Paul's giving them the principles. You have freedom. To application to alcohol, you have the freedom to imbibe or not imbibe. Every believer has the right and the freedom and the privileges of priesthood to drink in moderation. You do not have the right to abuse it or to ever get drunk. Then there is the law of love. Secondly, 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will not eat food again, that I may not cause my fellow Christian to stumble. Now let me tell you something about stumbling. If you're going to cause somebody to stumble, as Dr. Ryrie used to say, they've got to be moving. (laughs) The trouble is that the average self-righteous Christian isn't moving. He's mired in arrogance and self-righteousness. And he turns his nose up at you because you enjoy a glass of wine or a beer And he says, well, don't do that because you might cause somebody to stumble. Well, he's not really worried about anybody. To cause somebody to stumble means, in this context, was to sit them down and give an alcoholic, say, here, have a beer, have a glass of wine. This isn't somebody who, in the privacy of their own home, has a glass of wine or enjoys a beer. This is someone who is actively engaged in getting the other person to eat what he has a problem with in his own conscience. So the law of love says, don't cause a brother to stumble. Now, there are three categories of Christians. There's the weak brother. This is the brother, who, this is the individual believer who just hasn't learned enough doctrine yet to know that he has freedom in Christ to do, or to partake or not to partake. Then there's the mature believer who understands he has the privilege, but for the sake of this other believer, isn't going to participate because it may cause a problem for them in their spiritual life until they grow to maturity. Always when I teach on this, I remember an article that came out in Moody Monthly about 20 years ago that said, Weaker brother, grow up! There's too many baby, infantile believers who want to make issues out of things they shouldn't make issues out of. Now, what happens here is there's a third category of person. This is the Pharisee. See, it doesn't say here, don't partake because it might offend the Pharisee. See, there's always Pharisees, legalistic, self-righteous Christians who think Christians shouldn't drink at all. And they're the ones, not only does the Scripture say, not say that you shouldn't offend them, Jesus seemed to go out of his way to offend the Pharisees. You're not to cause the weak brother to stumble, but don't let the legalistic, self-righteous believer affect your decision-making because... They're in carnality anyway. There is the law of expediency in 1 Corinthians 9, 16 to 23, where Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. That means that you have to make certain decisions based upon 
your, your witness, the situation, the culture, a number of other factors, and decide that at this time maybe it's okay for me to do this, and at other times it may not be the expedient thing to do whatsoever because of the situation. So you have to take that into account. And then there's the law of supreme sacrifice where you may say, I have the right to do it, but I'm going to choose not to just so it doesn't create any problems. Four laws, the law of liberty and the law of love for the sake of a weaker brother not to participate at that particular time. In conclusions, one, alcohol is always wasted on the young. Teenagers and young people should abstain from alcohol altogether, and the only time they need it is in terms of medicine, like NyQuil. Point two, do not drink when you are tired, miserable, frustrated, and unhappy. Alcohol is a depressant, and it will just increase your problems. Third, if you are a young single woman or an older single woman, if you are in any place with men you do not know or are unfamiliar with or people you are unfamiliar with, you should abstain from drinking altogether, especially in today's environment where they're slipping Mickeys and other kinds of drugs into women's drinks so that they can um, take advantage of knock them out, take advantage of them, and rape them later. Uh, never drink in the presence of strangers. Fourth, never drink alone. That's always a sign of alcoholism is the person who drinks alone and tries to cover it up. Moderate drinking is for perhaps for social life and the enjoyment of it with others. Fifth, never drink on the job. Abstain from drinking on the job altogether. It clouds your judgment and your effectiveness and performance on the job. Sixth, this should go without saying, but I want to make it clear, never drink while you are driving, flying a plane, or operating any kind of machinery. That includes backhoes and uh, anything else that you may want to get into. Seven, never mix gunpowder and alcohol. When you're hunting, never drink. When you're out on the rifle range, never drink. Never mix gunpowder and alcohol. Eight, if you are drinking moderately and you choose to do that, only drink around those people you trust. Never drink around people you don't know. Uh, ninth, always avoid the Christian drunk, the guy who's just always pushing alcohol and beer or wine on you because ultimately you may get in trouble. And then finally, if you have any doubt, abstain because you can never go wrong with abstinence. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your word. Realize that no matter what our backgrounds may be, no matter what we may have been taught in the past, no matter what experiences we may have gone through in our families or in our past, that we know your word of God is true and absolute and that we can rely upon that. And I pray that for each one here, no matter what their situation or circumstance, that number one, if they have a weakness or propensity towards alcoholism, that they would realize that the best thing for them and for their spiritual life is to abstain. For others, may we learn to address this issue with maturity and balance, not give in to self-righteousness on the one hand or trend towards antinomian behavior on the other hand. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to die on the cross for our sins, who paid the price that we might have eternal life. And if there's anyone here this morning without a confidence of where they will spend eternity, may they take the time right now to settle that issue. The issue is faith alone and Christ alone. All they have to do is say, Father, I accept the free gift of Jesus Christ as my Savior.
So, Father, we commit this time to you for your honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.